Men yehdihillahu felâmudillelah ve men yudlil felâhâdiyelah ve eşhedü en lâ ilâhe illallâhu vehdehu lâ şerîkelah ve eşhedü enne Muhammeden abduhu ve rasûluh. Amma ba'd. So we've been doing the topic regarding the decree. We mentioned all of the various aspects now building up uh, the issue of the decree the four different stages of the decree and then about the different types of the will the will of Allah al-irada al-kawniyyah in the creational sense and also the will of Allah in the Islamic sense al-irada al-shar'iyyah <coughs> today then we come to the section where it talks about the ayah innaka la tahdi man ahbabt walakinna allah yahdi man yasha that you cannot guide whom you love but allah guides who he wills you cannot guide who you love but Allah guides who He wills. Al-Khitab lil-Rasooli sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The address here is to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Innaka la tahdi man ahbabt. That you cannot guide whom you love. Meaning, hidayah to tawfiq. Yani la tuwafiqhu lil hidayah hatta yahtadi. That you cannot guide a person that you love. This is in reference to the fact that guidance is of two types. There are two types of guidance overall that the scholars have mentioned. One type is what then? And the other type is what? What are the two types of guidance generally mentioned? Hidayatul Irshad and the other one, Tawfiq. The first type of guidance, the Irshad, is whereby you would guide a person to the truth, show them what the truth is, and warn them from what the falsehood is. You could explain to a person what Tawheed is, and warn them against what Shirk is. You can explain to a person what Sunnah is, and warn them against what Bid'ah is. You can give that type of guidance to people. That type of guidance, the guidance whereby you are clarifying the truth from falsehood, that you can do. That is what all of the prophets and messengers did. They came with that type of guidance. The guidance of directing someone to the truth. Showing them the truth, showing them Tawheed, showing them Sunnah, and warning them against the opposite, the falsehood, the 
shirk and the bid'ah. That is that level of guidance. Can we do that or not? Absolutely. You can do that. You can guide a person in that way by telling them those things, explaining those things to them. You can give that type of guidance to a person. Once you've given that type of guidance to a person, you've explained to him what Tawheed is and what Sunnah is, and you've explained to him what the evil of Shirk is and Bid'ah is, you've given him that guidance on those affairs. Will he accept or not? Once you've sat with him for five hours, and you've been explaining and explaining and explaining, and you've given him all that guidance on those affairs, at the end of those five hours, will he accept or not? Maybe, maybe not. Do you have the power to be able to make a person accept? That's the second level of guidance. The second level of guidance is the tawfiq from Allah. Whether that person, his heart is enlightened to accept, that isn't in your control. Your control does not extend to enlightening the heart of a person to accept that guidance. All you can do is to give that general level of Guidance to the person in explaining the truth and warning from the falsehood. Whether the person's heart becomes enlightened with what you've told him and he therefore takes it and accepts it, that level of guidance is not in your control. That is known as what the Sheikh mentions here, Hidayat Tawfiq. That Tawfiq, that enlightenment, that Success that Allah gives to a person, that enlightenment, the inner enlightenment, that is not in your control to give to anybody. All you have is the the dilala wal irshad, as they say, that you can guide a person to the truth and warn him against the falsehood. Whether his heart will be enlightened to take all of that and do it then, that you don't control. So you have two levels of guidance. The general level of guidance of directing somebody to the truth, warning them from the falsehood. That we can do, that is what all of the prophets and messengers did. The second level of guidance, whether that person's heart will be enlightened to accept that and take it in and practice it, that is only from Allah. So, two levels of guidance, one level we can do, one level we do not have the ability to control. In this ayah, Allah says to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, إِنَّكَ لَا تَهْدِي مَنْ أَحْبَبْتِ You cannot guide whom you love. وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ يَهْدِي مَنْ يَشَاءُ But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guides whom He wills. You cannot guide whom you love, meaning what? Which of the two types of guidance is being meant? 
the tawfiq, the inner enlightenment, you cannot just decide this person, I'm going to give him da'wah and I will make him accept. You could be giving him da'wah all day, 12 hours sat with him and he refuses. So you don't have that control of the inner enlightenment. And that's the meaning of this ayah saying to the Prophet ﷺ, you do not have that guidance, the inner guidance to give to whom you love. This ayah, they say, the scholars of tafsir, that it was regarding his uncle Abu Talib. That it was regarding his uncle Abu Talib. The Sheikh mentions it here too. هذه الآية نزلت تسلية للرسول صلى الله عليه وسلم في عمه أبي طالب. This ayah was revealed as a what do you call it when somebody dies and you go to consolation? Consolation. It was given as a consolation. To the Prophet ﷺ regarding his uncle Abu Talib. Because we know the story of Abu Talib after the Prophet ﷺ, his father died. How old was the Prophet ﷺ when his father died? Only if you're less than 10, answer the question. How old? Huh? He wasn't even born yet. And then how old was he when his mother died? Six, seven, around about. Who looked after him then? His grandfather who was called? Abdul Muttalib. But his name was actually, for bonus points, open to the adults. (coughs) Nobody? There's your homework for this week. What was the actual name of the grandfather of the Prophet ﷺ? He is known as Abdul Muttalib. But what was his actual name? Homework for this week, there you go. So, he was looked after him for two years, and then after that, who looked after him? His uncle, Abu Talib. Was Abu Talib a Muslim? No. But he looked after the Prophet ﷺ, raised him, and even after the Prophet became a Prophet at the age of 40, Abu Talib, did he then leave him or carried on protecting him and helping him even after the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ started refuting the religion of Abu Talib and calling to Tawheed? Did he carry on still looking after him? Carried on, carried on protecting him, carried on defending him, carried on to such an extent, so much that even the other mushrikeen, they began doing bad things to Abu Talib, even though Abu Talib was a mushrik just like them, he wasn't Muslim, but they began doing bad things to him too, oppressing him too, because of his defense of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So then when he was dying, Abu Talib was on his deathbed. <coughs> was on his deathbed. What happened? The Prophet Muhammad 
sallallahu alayhi wa sallam went to visit him. When his uncle now Abu Talib was dying, he went to visit him and when he got there, he noticed two of the mushrikeen were also visiting Abu Talib at his deathbed. He's about to die. So the Prophet ﷺ went there and he said to him, Ya Am, O oh my uncle. He said that to him, uh, words, that are indi- words that show compassion, that show love. O oh my uncle, قُلْ لَا إِلَٰهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ Say, لَا إِلَٰهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ He was trying to convince Abu Talib to become a Muslim just before he dies. He was about to die. So he went there to try and convince him to become a Muslim. But when the Prophet said to Abu Talib, Say, La ilaha illallah, my uncle, I'll be able to defend you. You'll have something to defend yourself with on the Day of Judgment, to die upon Tawheed. But then the Mushrikun saw that the Prophet was trying to make him become Muslim. So they said to him, they said to him, Are you going to abandon the religion of your forefathers? Are you going to abandon the religion of your forefathers? Because imagine his father, his father, his father, they were all mushrikun upon the religion of shirk. So they began saying to him, Are you going to abandon the religion of your forefathers? So when the Prophet ﷺ heard them trying to convince him to stay as a kafir, he repeated again, my uncle, say, La ilaha illallah. But when the mushrikun saw him trying again, they said it again, are you going to leave the religion of your forefathers? In the end, <coughs> the narrator of that narration says, the last thing that he said was, upon the religion of Abdul Muttalib. That he is upon the religion of his fathers and forefathers. He died as a kafir, therefore. The Prophet tried, even at the last moment, to convince him to become Muslim. Abu Talib, everything he had done, defending and protecting the Prophet ﷺ, protecting him and defending him against the mushrikun. It's even mentioned by Ibn Kathir in Al-Bidaya wa Nihaya, a poem, there's a poem in the book of Ibn Kathir, Al-Bidaya wa Nihaya. There's a poem in there which is supposed to have been written by Abu Talib. He mentions a poem in there which is supposed to have been written by Abu Talib. In that poem he says that I know the best of the religions of mankind is the religion of Muhammad. The best of the religions is the religion of Muhammad. But then he says, لَوْلَ الْمَلَامَةُ أَوْ مَسَبَّةَ مَسَبَّةَ Something he mentions after that. Was it not for 
the blameworthiness of abusing my forefathers, the guilt and the blameworthiness I would experience and feel for abandoning the religion of my forefathers, then you would have seen me forthcoming to Islam. Was it not for the blameworthiness and the guilt and that feeling of abandoning my forefathers and turning my back upon them, then you would have seen me forthcoming to the religion of Islam. And it is said, it is said that this poem was written by Abu Talib. So he recognized, yet the problem was even though he recognized and understood the truth, he did not enter into it. He didn't pronounce the shahada and enter into Islam. So just recognizing the truth is not enough. <coughs> recognizing and knowing and even defending the truth like he did. Even being harmed by the kuffar for defending the truth. If you do not actually yourself enter into it and accept it and practice it, then simply knowing it and defending it from outside isn't what's going to save you on the day of judgment. So it requires belief and actions. Belief and actions and statements as it's mentioned. So he was trying to convince his uncle to become Muslim, but he didn't. And he died upon kufr. So the Prophet ﷺ was somewhat saddened that his uncle didn't die upon Islam. Despite all of the defense and the help his uncle had given him all those years, he didn't die upon Islam. So then Allah revealed this ayah. إِنَّكَ لَا تَهْدِي مَنْ أَحْبَبْتَ You cannot guide whom you love. But Allah is the one who guides whom he wills. That was a consolation to the Prophet that it's not in your control and it was not in your hands. The fate of Abu Talib, what happened to him in the end, that was not in your control, not in your hands. So that is consolation to the Prophet that what occurred to Abu Talib wasn't in your control. It wasn't any negligence or any shortcoming from you. That guidance is only from Allah. So this is the ayah and the context of this particular ayah. Some of the scholars do mention oh, in fact, in fact, you have the, the poem here as well before we go on. The poem is quoted by the Shaykh. Walaqad alim to be anadina Muhammad min khayri adyanil bariyati dina. Walaul al malama tu au hidara masabbatin la raitani samhan. <coughs> that is what is quoted by Ibn Kathir uh, from the poem that is attributed to Abu Talib. Before we move on, there is another ayah in the Quran the scholars often mention together with this one to clarify any potential confusion that may occur. There is another ayah in the Quran that says, question is open like that, could be anyone. 
but something linked to this. No, the opposite. We want an ayah opposite. Where Allah says, you do guide. So now this ayah says, indeed you guide to the straight path. The Prophet ﷺ is being told, indeed you guide to the straight path. Whereas this ayah is saying, you cannot guide whom you love. So then how do you combine the two ayat? You cannot guide whom you love is talking about the inner guidance, the inner enlightenment. That is not in your control or any of our control. Yet the other ayah, you guide to the straight path, that is referencing the other level of guidance, the general level of guidance of showing people the truth, uh, warning them against falsehood. So there is no contradiction between those ayat. It is talking about two different levels of guidance. Here now, as Shaykh al he says, وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ يَهْدِي مَنْ يَشَاءُ وَلَمْ يَقُلْ وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ يَهْدِيهِ بَلْ عَمَّ مَا فَقَالْ يَهْدِي مَنْ يَشَاءُ لِيَشْمَلْ مَنْ أَحَبَّ وَمَنْ لَمْ يُحِبَّ فَالْهِدَايَةُ بِيَدِ اللَّهِ عَزَّ وَجَلُ So Allah says in the end of the ayah, or that part of the ayah there, وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ يَهْدِي مَنْ يَشَاءُ that Allah guides whom He wills. Meaning that this guidance, it is in the control of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then, in fact He mentions that too, here it is. فَإِنْ قَالَ قَائِلْ كَيْفَ تَجْمَعُونَ بَيْنَ هَذِهِ الْآيَةِ وَبَيْنَ قَوْلِهِ تَعَالَى وَإِنَّكَ لَتَهْدِي إِلَى صِرَاطٍ مُسْتَقِيمٍ how would you combine between this ayah that you cannot guide whom you love and the ayah that indeed you guide to the straight path. And as we've said, it is referring to the two different levels of guidance in the simplest form of the explanation of that. So that ayah, how is it connected to our topic of discussion? Talking about the will of Allah, that Allah guides whom He wills. Here there is the issue about why a person may say, and we've discussed enough now to have a general understanding of it. If a person was to say, well then why has Allah willed for him to be guided and for that guy not to be guided? Why did Allah will for this person to be guided and for that one on the street not to be guided? Firstly, like we said, as a general rule, you know, the scholars, they mention with these types of topics. If a person asks you or wants to try and pick out some debate against you, especially in Kashf al-Shubuhat, if you study that properly, it gives you a lot of techniques, you can say, in being able to reply and being able to explain your position even if you don't have the details and the knowledge and the memorized ayat and everything. So here, even if you didn't know the details of the answer, there is a generalized answer that you can give. And the generalized answer to begin with would be to say, 
that everything Allah does is with absolute wisdom. So if Allah has decreed for this one to be guided and that one not, you're asking me why? All I can tell you is every single thing is done by absolute wisdom by Allah. That is a generalized level of answer. Then on top of that, we can say more. We've done enough now to be able to say a bit more. Allah has given us all choice. Allah has, they say that Allah, has give, <coughs> that Allah has given you two things. Allah has given you two things they mention in the books of Aqeedah. That you've been given irada, you've been given a will, and then you've been given qudra, ability. They say Allah has given us all irada and qudra. Uh, intention, will, and ability. With those two things that Allah has given us, we are able to have choice. Because with your irada, with your will, you decide you want to do something. You make an intention, your irada, your will to do something. But then, to actually do it, you need ability. So Allah has given you intention and ability. So now I decide I want to pick up the bottle of water. I make the irada, I want to pick up the bottle of water. Then I have the qudra to be able to do so. I have now made my choice with my intention and my qudra to have done this action. Of course, before I made this irada and I used my qudra to do it, before I made this intention and I used my ability to do it, Allah already knew that on this day, at this time, I was going to make this irada and use my ability and do it. But at the time, I didn't know that beforehand. Before I came to the class today, I didn't know I was going to do that example and pick up the bottle of water. At this moment, I made the irada, I used my ability and I did it. So I had the choice to do that. So now a person who chooses not to accept guidance, then that is from his intention and his ability that he is refusing that guidance. And Allah knows who the ones are that refuse that guidance. You cannot say, like the people of innovation say, like the Jabariyyah, that we are compelled. That kafir on the street, it was written in the decree 50,000 years before creation, he was going to be a kafir and die upon kufr. If that's the case, like that type of thinking, then what's his fault? Why is he going to go hellfire then? Because here in this world right now, even though yes, it was written in the decree 50,000 years ago, he was going to be a kafir and die upon kufr. Here, right now, what he does, how he lives, whether he accepts or not, Allah has given him ability and intent and choice. Ability to read and listen and go and gain that knowledge which is widespread. That's why they say there is no excuse for the one who lives in an urban environment. 
the one who lives in an environment where everything is accessible, then those kuffar do not have an excuse. The only time an excuse may be given is if they were in an environment where knowledge was not accessible, living in the tribes on some islands, living in the Amazon rainforest, whatever it might be. At a time or a place where it was not accessible to them, that's something else. Everywhere else where it's accessible, they all have the ability, the intention, the intellect to choose to read and learn and understand or not. They have chosen to ignore and turn a blind eye. And Allah knows those who are going to choose to turn a blind eye and ignore. And hence those have been decreed to be upon kufr. So it is not to be thought of, Allah has decreed that person was going to be a kafir, so then what's his fault? Why is he going to go to hellfire when it was decreed he was going to be a kafir? Yes, it was. But at this moment in time, he's living his life as a kafir by his choice. He has the choice to turn back from that and come to Islam. Allah's given him all the abilities, yet he is choosing to continue as he continues. So that is in brief uh, a little bit about the issue of guidance. Then after that, <coughs> it goes on to the ayah. يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ بِكُمُ الْيُسْرَ وَلَا يُرِيدُ بِكُمُ الْعُسْرَ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants ease for you and does not want difficulty for you. This type is mentioned in several ayat. For example, another one, فَمَنْ شَهِدَ مِنْكُمُ الشَّهْرَ فَلْيَسُمْ Whomsoever from amongst you witnesses the month, meaning the new moon of Ramadan, فَلْيَسُمْهُ Then let him, he must fast upon the sighting of the moon. وَمَنْ كَانَ مَرِيضًا أَوْ عَلَى سَفَرٍ فَعِدَّةٌ مِّنْ أَيَّامٍ أُخَرٍ But whomsoever is ill or upon a journey, traveling, then عِدَّةٌ مِّنْ أَيَّامٍ أُخَرٍ A number of days from the other days, meaning you make them up. And then Allah says, يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ بِكُمُ الْيُسْرَ وَلَا يُرِيدُ بِكُمُ الْعُسْرِ That Allah wants ease for you and does not want difficulty for you. <coughs> وَمِنْ هُنَا نَعْرِفْ أَنَّ الْإِرَادَةِ هُنَا شَرْعِيَّةِ وَلَا بُدِّ وَلَيْسَتْ إِرَادَةِ كَوْنِيَّةِ لِأَنَّ الْإِرَادَةِ الْكَوْنِيَّةِ قَدْ تَكُونُ فِي أُمُورٍ تَعْصُرْ عَلَيْنَا here when Allah says that he wants ease for us and not difficulty. That Allah wants ease for us and not difficulty. Which type of want, which type of irada is that referencing? Legislative. Has to be. If it was the irada kauniya, the creational sense of it, then that would mean all of us would always be in ease. And we know that isn't the case. 
There may be situations that arise upon us that are situations of difficulty. So we know this is from the irada shar'iyah, that Allah loves the ease for us. However, in the creational sense, we may well face some difficulties and hardships. They could be as a consequence of our own sins for what we have earned for ourselves. They could be as a consequence of trials to expiate our sins and to raise us in rank. So this is from the irada shar'iyah that Allah wants ease for us and not difficulty. وَمَا أَجْمَلَ هَذِهِ الْآيَةِ وَأَحْسَنَهَا أَنْ يَكُونَ مُرَادُ اللَّهِ بِنَا عَزَّ وَجَلْ فِي شَرْعِهِ هُوَ الْيُسْرِ وَلِهَذَا قَالَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ يَسِّرُوا وَلَا تُعَسِّرُوا وَبَشِّرُوا وَلَا تُنَفِّرُوا The Prophet said يَسِّرُوا وَلَا تُعَسِّرُوا Make things easy, do not make things difficult. Make things easy upon yourselves and others and don't make them difficult. And give glad tidings. Do not push people away. Give glad tidings, be open and do not push people away. So, and similarly in another narration, إِنَّمَا بُعِثْتُمْ مُيَسِّرِينَ وَلَمْ تُبْعَثُوا مُعَسِّرِينَ That you have been sent to make things easy, not to make things difficult. هَذِهِ الْقَاعِدَةِ اجْعَلْهَا عِنْدَكِ وَقَدْ بَنَا عَلَيْهَا بَعْضُ الْعُلَمَا مَسْأَلَةِ This is a type of principle you can now remember. The principle of ease and not difficulty. That the religion wants the ease, not the difficulty for us. And here there is an issue. إِذَا اخْتَلَفَ الْعُلَمَاءِ عَلَىٰ قَوْلَيْنِ وَلَمْ يَتَبَيَّنْ لِلْإِنسَانِ الرَّاجِحِ مِنْهُمَا فَهَلْ يَأْخُذُ بِالْأَشَدِّ أَوْ بِالْأَيْسَرِ أَوْ يُخَيَّرِ In a situation now... <coughs> whereby the scholars have differed over an issue. The scholars have differed over a particular issue. So there are two opinions on that given issue. It's not clear to you which of the two opinions is the correct one. So in that situation, should you apply this principle generally? That Allah wants ease for you, not difficulty. Look at the two opinions and say, well, that fatwa is much more convenient and easier. So I'll take that one. I'll take that opinion. Because Allah wants ease for us, not difficulty. In this situation, there are two opinions about this issue. I have no idea really which one where to go with. But generally, Allah wants ease. And from the two of them, that one is a lot easier. That opinion, what the scholars are saying there, it's a lot easier, much more convenient. Upon this principle, I'll therefore take that opinion. Can you do that or not? Okay, so the Shaykh, he says, 
الجواب يأخذ بالأيسر You can take that easier opinion If you're in that situation, two opinions, don't know where to go How to work out, what is stronger, what's not Then from the two of them, yes, you can go with the easier one يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ بِكُمُ الْيُسْرَ وَلَا يُرِيدُ بِكُمُ الْعُسْرَ Allah wants ease, not difficulty for you. However, some of the scholars have said, and in fact, most of the time this is what they say, what we're about to say now, is that you should go with the opinion that is a bit more inclusive and may require a bit more effort the one that isn't easier. Why do they say that? Because of the statement that they mention often that you take al-ahwat. You take al-ahwat. Meaning, when you have, firstly we should mention, this issue of difference of opinion, we are talking about legitimate differences of opinion. Don't think you can take this and apply it to anything and, any, and everything. There isn't legitimate differences in everything and everything. You may get scholars, so-called scholars we should say, ulama su in reality, giving fatawa that it's permissible to listen to music. It's permissible to do, uh, you know they say, if you search hard enough, if you search hard enough, you will find a fatwa for what? Anything and everything. You want to do something? If you search and search and search hard enough, you'll find someone out there who gives a fatwa, it's okay. But then the scholars have mentioned, you don't follow the shawaz like that. You don't follow these random one-offs giving these fatwa that are completely baseless and useless. So here in this case now, it's not about anything and everything. We're talking about legitimate differences of opinion based upon evidences between Ahlul Sunnah and you're stuck on a particular situation, then you could take the easier one as some scholars say. But others, and this appears to be what is most often quoted, they'll say no, take the Ahwat. The Ahwat being the opinion that gets you out of trouble from both sides, basically. An example, should you recite Al-Fatiha in the prayer or not? When you are praying behind the Imam. That is an example of this issue here now. Should you recite Al-Fatiha when you are praying behind the <coughs> Imam? <coughs> so... Should you or not? Loud voice. You should. Okay, anybody else? MashaAllah. Shaykh al-Islam here. That is the opinion of Shaykh al-Islam. That if the Imam is reading out loud, then you don't have to read. If he's reading quietly, then you should read. But what are the two main opinions? Two main opinions are basically that you have to read when the Imam is reading and the other one, you don't have to read when the Imam is reading. Remember this issue, we did it a long time ago in Sifat al-Salah. 
to explain the issue, you break it down firstly into the types of prayer. How many different ways or situations can you be praying in? Three. There are three situations that you can be praying in. Either you are going to be praying by yourself. You're praying some sunnah, you're praying tahiyatul masjid, you're praying some prayer by yourself. The other situation is you are praying as the imam. Maybe you are praying a given prayer as the imam leading everyone. And the third obviously is that you are one of the congregation being led by the imam. So any prayer, it's going to be one of those three situations. Any prayer you're praying, either you're praying it by yourself, or you're praying it as the imam leading everyone, or you're praying it as one of the congregation being led by the imam. If you're praying by yourself, or you're praying as the imam, there is absolutely no difference of opinion. There is only one opinion. You must recite al-Fatiha. The difference only exists in the scenario when you are being led in congregation behind the imam. In that situation, imam is now leading the fajr prayer. He's reciting out loud al-Fatiha. Do you have to be reading al-Fatiha too or not? This is the difference of opinion. Some scholars... Yes, even then you have to. Some scholars, no, you don't have to. But now in that situation, you can't work out what to do then. Shall I recite Al-Fatiha, shall I not? If I am going to recite Al-Fatiha and take that opinion, anybody take that opinion here? Put your hands up if you have to recite Al-Fatiha. Okay. Keep your hands up. So now tell us, when you recite Al-Fatiha in the Fajr prayer, when do you recite it? After the Imam finishes? So when the Imam says, Ameen, You then start doing Alhamdulillah, You start doing it. And at that time, the Imam is now starting the Surah, he's starting reciting. So the Imam is reciting Quran, you're reciting your own thing. Are you listening to what the Imam is saying? That's it, then when they agreed, the other opinion is correct. <laughs> so, in that case, you have lots of issues. But, the point is, opinion says you recite, opinion says you don't recite. Which is the ahwat? We're talking about the opinion that is ahwat. Even in terms of ease. Ease, you could say, is that you just stand still, silently, don't recite. Easy. More complicated, even though it's not m- much more complicated here, but is to then have to recite. Which of the two opinions is the ahwat, the opinion that will get you out of trouble the most? To recite it. Why? Because when you recite it, then the scholars on that opinion are all happy with you. The other side, who believe you're not supposed to recite when the imam is reading, they won't be pleased with you, but what will they say regarding the validity of your prayer? It's valid, but they'll say you are competing with the imam's recitation. You're not listening to him when he's reading his surah. You're doing your own fatiha. Or they'll say you're making up pauses in the prayer that don't exist. 
that the Imam says, Amin, and then go silent for everybody to catch up with their Fatiha. They say, where's the evidence for that? Even though some scholars do mention some narrations. But anyway, in that case, they'll say, okay, you shouldn't be reciting, you're competing with the Imam, but your prayer is valid. If you take the opinion you don't have to recite, so now this group of scholars will be happy with you. You don't have to recite, you're following that opinion. But the other group of scholars, what will they say about the validity of your prayer now? They, according to them, if you don't recite Al-Fatiha, your prayer is invalid. So who are you going to get more in trouble with? If you take the opinion that you don't have to recite. So which one is considered the Ahwat? To recite. That's what they mean. When you study fiqh, in the books of fiqh, and they talk about the Ahwat opinion, which means the most encompassing. What's the opinion where you can get most people happy and sound with you? Where most of the scholars and most of the opinions won't put you into trouble? What's the opinion that will give you that position? That's the Ahwat. So here, most of the scholars, they say that's the opinion you should take. If you're stuck on a situation, take the opinion that gives you the least trouble from all the opinions. The least problems from that group and from this group the opinion that keeps everything covered in the most general way. So that is the ahwat, and that may not necessarily be the easiest. So that is what the Shaykh mentions here. Some scholars, he does mention, they'll say, <coughs> you can simply choose. If you're in a situation where there is a genuine difference of opinion between the scholars, <coughs> then... You can simply choose one of the two and do it because you genuinely don't know which one is stronger, which one to go with. Genuine difference of opinion between the scholars. For example, coming out of the ruku'ah, where do your hands go? When you've done your fatiha, now you've done that now. You've gone into the ruku'ah, you've done your ruku'ah. Sami'allahu liman hamidah, rabbana wa lakal hamd, upon one of the forms. And then where do you put your hands? At the side of your arms, of course, obviously. And then, but some scholars may say that you put it back on your chest. So that type of issue there, now you look into it, you read into it, and both sides extremely strong. Because that is one part of the prayer where there is nothing definitive mentioned. There is no narration that says, where a companion says, and then after the rukur, I saw the Prophet ﷺ put his hands back on his chest. Doesn't exist. And neither does any narration exist saying, and I saw the Prophet ﷺ leave his hands down by the side after the rukur. So nothing exists explicitly on that place in the prayer. So then it's about judgment upon the narrations. So the scholars who say, put it back on your chest, from the simplest forms of the explanation, they say the prayer is broken up into various parts. There is a part of the prayer when you stand. There is a part of the prayer when you do rukur, the bowing. There is a part of the prayer when you do prostration. And there is a part of the prayer when you are sitting. Four main parts of the prayer. Standing, rukur, sujood, sitting. Four main parts. When you're in the rukur position, that part of the prayer, your hands go 
on your knees, your legs are normal, width apart, your arms are outstretched, everything is explained what you do. When you're in the sujood, everything is explained, the seven body parts on the ground, etc, etc. When you're sitting down, it's all explained, you put your finger, your, your legs, the way you put them in the final tashahud, etc, all explained. When you're standing, in the standing part of the prayer, it's explained that your hands are, when you're doing your fatiha, the standing part of the prayer, hands on the chest, right hand on top of the left hand upon the chest. You're doing your fatiha like that. So when you go into ruku' and then you come back out of ruku', you've now come back into which one of the four positions of the prayer? Standing position of the prayer. In the standing position of the prayer, it's been explained that your hands go on your chest. They say, therefore, simply, you are now in a standing form of the prayer. In the standing form of the prayer, it's hands on the chest, which is a very good argument. It's a very good argument. Because the opposite of that then is much more difficult to explain. For you to say now, okay, there are four parts of the prayer, standing, ruku', sujood, sitting. Standing, hands on the chest, ruku', knees, etc., sujood on the floor, sitting on your thighs. Now for you to say after you come out of the ruku', you are in a standing position, but you're not going to do what you were doing before. You're now going to put your hands down by your side, then what's your evidence for that? Because they'll say the default is, go back to where you were. And there is a narration, when you come back out of ruku'ah, and this is how these differences occur. There's a narration that says, when you come out of ruku'ah, let all your body parts go back to their natural position. So before the ruku'ah, your, your position of your bones was like how? Your right arm was folded up on top of your left arm. That's where the position of your bones was before you went into ruku'ah. Hadith says, come back and put your bones back into the positions. So that would be back into the position of your right hand on top of your left. Unless, of course, it means put your bones back into their positions. The arms, the position of your arms normally is where? Stand up one second. Stand up one second. Where has he stood up with his arms? The default is therefore your arms to be down by your side. That is the default and that is the physical proof. Sit down. The <laughs> default is that your arms are down by your side. If somebody said to you stand up, nobody stands up and does this. That's not the natural position for your bones. So if it means natural position for your bones, the natural position of the arms is down by the side. Yet the others will say, no, it means the natural position where they were before you went into ruku'ah, which was here. So you have all the differences. The point was though, in that scenario, you can't understand where to go with it. Then in that case, there is an opinion, an opinion of some scholars. They say in that case, just select one of them. Because really in that case, it's very difficult to say there's even an ahwat. You pick one, you're in complete trouble with the other side. You pick the other, you're in complete trouble with the other side. There is only one thing there. So in that situation, they may say, just pick one of them and stick with that then. There's many examples of that. After you've done your ruku' now, and you put your hands down by your side, 
or wherever you put them and then you go down into the sujood you're going to go into prostration how are you going to go into prostration are you going to touch your knees to the ground first or are you going to touch your hands to the ground first hands to the ground first why hands to the ground first hadith <laughs> which hadith لا تبرك كما يبرك البعير Don't go down like a camel goes down. <clears throat> See, look at this one now and you'll understand why scholars have differences of opinion. How can it be you might think the Quran and Sunnah is all there? How can there be differences of opinion when the hadith are all there? It's things like this. Hadith now says, don't go down into prostration the way a camel goes down when it sits down. When a camel goes down, standing up, Kamal is standing up and it goes to sit down. Which of its legs bend first? Its front legs bends its front legs and then the back of the camel and its back legs come and sit down. So according to that then, do not go down the way a camel goes down. You should not go down with your hands first. You should go down with your knees first. However, in the narration, it mentions that a camel goes down with its knees, uh, with its uh, hands first, but, or the knees first, but the point is, where are the knees of a camel? That all depends as well about is it the front legs, is it the back legs that are being referenced? But the main difference there is about the understanding of what it means to not go down like a camel goes down. To not go down like a camel goes down. A camel goes down, knees first. Its front legs are its knees. So a camel goes down, knees first. Therefore we should go down, hands first. However the hadith says don't go down like a camel goes down. A camel physically goes down, front first therefore we should maybe go down back first knees first so now it all depends on does the hadith that says don't go down like a camel goes down on its knees literally mean the knees of the camel and that is the front legs of the camel they are the front legs the knees of the camel are its front legs but that's where its knees are if they are the knees of the camel and it's going down upon its knees, then we should go down upon our hands. That's the knees. The camel goes down on its knees. So we should go down on our hands. But if you go down on your hands, then the physical form, the physical method, that you go down in is the same physical method as the camel goes down. So some scholars say the hadith is talking about when it says don't go down like a camel goes down. The physical method the camel goes down. And that's front first. So you should go down with your knees first. But the narration talks about the knees too. So some scholars say no, it's talking about literally the camel goes down on its knees they happen to be the front legs, so what? That's its knees. We don't copy the camel, so we don't go down on 
our knees and we go down on hands. So you have the difference there. So the point here is the Shaykh he mentioned it's not always about taking the easiest. More than often it's about taking the ahwat, the opinion that is the most encompassing and takes you out of the problems. And then some of the scholars they mentioned regarding picking if there is nothing to decide upon. Uh, Sheikh al says that as far as his opinion is and he says it is the ijma' that we take the easiest in those situations take the easiest of the opinion نَأْخُذُ بِالْأَيْسَرِ إِذَا لَمْ يَتَرَجَّحْ عِنْدَ الْإِنسَانِ أَحَدَ الدَّلِيلَيْنِ If none of the evidences are heavier than any other then you take the easier one that is the opinion of the Shaykh we're going to round off on that point today. We'll carry on with, in fact, in fact, no, hang on a second. One moment, a couple of minutes, then we'll round off. Just one more point left here. It's basically a conclusion. It's basically a conclusion to this section so far. The Sheikh says, therefore, therefore, after all of that discussion, the last three sessions now, he says, فيما يتعلق أجمع المسلمون على قول يتعلق بالمشيئة وهو ما شاء الله كان وما لم يشأ لم يكن All of the Muslims are agreed upon saying the statement that whatever Allah wills occurs and whatever Allah does not will will not occur and then he says, we've now discussed that the irada is two types. You have the irada kawniyya and the irada shar'iyya. Then there's a few questions. What did we say about why evil things occur? Because there is something at a secondary level that is of a maslaha from it. So the primary level of something we may not understand, we may think it's just bad. They sometimes give examples in the books of Aqeedah, scorpions. Why did Allah create scorpions? What benefit do we get from scorpions? All they do if they come across us is kill us. So primarily from how we see things there, in our perspective it's just evil. But there is nothing of pure evil like that. That is something which has a secondary maslaha, some wisdom that Allah has created that for, something that arises from that. So from our perspective, it may be evil how we view it. From the perspective of the creator, then there is wisdom behind that we may not necessarily understand. And the same with sins, because of what compounds upon them, what uh, emanates from them, what happens because of them, then they are decreed also. If somebody said then, if you're talking about secondary benefits, what secondary benefit is there out of pure kufr? Somebody being upon kufr and pure kufr existing. What is the benefit out of that? The secondary benefit out of that? The Shaykh mentions, لَوْ آمَنَ النَّاسُ كُلُّهُمْ We explained this before. If, if everybody was therefore a believer and a Muslim, then there'd be no test left 
This is the whole test and the choice you've been given to be upon Iman or to abandon that and remain upon Kufr. That is the test. There is your benefit. If that Kufr didn't exist at all, then everybody is a mu'min and there is no test and everybody is in paradise. So that is the section rounded off there. We'll start with the new hadith. Next lesson, insha'Allah ta'ala. Round off on that. You have that homework. What was the actual name of the grandfather of the Prophet and why? Just to prevent and to stop the Googlers. Why as well? What was the actual name of the grandfather of the Prophet and why? In fact, the why, what I mean by the why is, why was he called Abdul Muttalib then? If he's actually got another actual name, then why was he named and termed and known as Abdul Muttalib then? Too late. Next week now. <laughs> so we'll round off there. Anything anybody wants to ask God? Huh? Uh, books of innovation, uh, books of absolute deviation, innovation, they have Quran in them. The same rule for the Quran generally, you can burn them. They are books of absolute deviation from the people of innovation, misguidance in them. They have Quran in them, of course, you can't throw them away, burn them. It could be, if you come across... You see this issue here now about opinions, when you get stuck on something and scholars have different opinions, it could be that you take it that way, that you take the opinion of the Jumhur. What is the opinion of the majority of the scholars on this issue? And so you go with that. That's perfectly good. No problem with that. That could be the method that you then uh, follow that opinion on, what the majority of the scholars are upon. What was last week's? What was the homework? Oh yes, the okay, quickly the homework for last week then. Remember the homework was from last week. Look, everybody stays quiet, nothing, you're gonna walk off. No one's gonna say anything. There was the homework about fasting on one day, missing one day. Mentions in the Sunnah, the best fasting, the fasting of Dawood. Fasting one day, missing one day. But then at the same time you have the fasting of Mondays and Thursdays. Clearly, it's impossible to combine them both. You can't do one day and miss one day, and at the same time catch every Monday and Thursday. It's always going to fall out of the sequence. So then how do you combine between them? Who's done the homework? Alright, so you're saying it can't be combined, that's obvious, because it can't be combined. It's impossible to combine. The sequence is always going to break when you're trying to do one, one on one off. You're never going to be able to do every Monday and Thursday. So it's impossible to combine, that much we know. But then how do you combine between understanding the rewards of things? That is almost like what you said. The scholars have mentioned, obviously it's impossible to combine them there. But a person, if he does, for example, the fasting of Dawood, and he sticks to that, and he does that, then that suffices him or covers him for the overall reward of Mondays and Thursdays, for example. 
And some scholars have said it doesn't necessitate that you stick to one way. You could do the fasting of Dawood. You do fasting one day, miss one day, one day, miss one day. And then after a couple of weeks, that particular week, you're going to stick to making sure you do the Monday and Thursday in that sequence. And so sometimes you may do this and sometimes you may do that. But to do them both simultaneously always isn't possible. But each one has its rewards. And this is a section they mention sometimes as well in the books of Aqeedah. Why Allah has given us multiple different types, types of worship. Multiple different types of worship. Everybody has different levels. Everybody has different abilities. So then every person has some type of worship that they can do more easier. Maybe one person, he can't do one day, one day every day. He can't do one day off, one day on, always too difficult. So khalas, you've been told about the reward of Mondays and Thursdays. So you do that. But even the person who wants to do that and is doing one day on, one day off, then there could be a week where he makes sure or he just misses two days in a row, for example, to be able to then catch up on the Monday or to catch up on the Thursday. So you combine in those ways by fasting at different times together simultaneously always isn't possible. All right, so... Uh. That's the same, they call them Ahlul Fitra, the people of the time period, the time period where there was no uh, uh, new message that came, no prophet or messenger that came. So the scholars, they mentioned, they'll be given a test in the hereafter. There'll be a test for them in the hereafter, like some of the scholars say about children who die before the age of puberty. There is an opinion that those children will be given a test in the hereafter, whereby they are shown a fire and told to jump into that fire the ones who obey, then actually it's paradise, and the ones who do not, then it becomes known that they would not obey. So there are some tests that are mentioned of that nature. So, <coughs> if a woman has multiple pieces of gold that she has acquired at different times, can she pay her zakat upon them simultaneously or must she pay each individually a year from the date she acquired them? Anybody? <coughs> a woman has gold. <coughs> She's been getting the gold at different times. Zakat, obviously we know it's due once you've had the nisab, the set amount for a year. Then from that point, the zakat is due. But she's been getting this gold at different times. It doesn't really matter about the different times. It's about the nisab. Once you've got the gold that gets to the level where zakat is due, and in this country when you weigh it out, the 80 grams, it's about 2,000, 2,500 pounds. Something along those lines. When you get that much gold, work out the exact figures from the weight of gold and the price of gold, but it normally between two and 3,000 pounds. When you've got that amount then, and you've had it for a year, you've got that amount and you've had it for a year, that is your point of giving the zakat. The new gold that you get then, the new wealth, you can still give all of it at the original point of your zakat. If you're going to do them all simultaneously, then it has to be upon the point of the first due date of the zakat. And you can do all of the others. The others will be considered advanced payment and that's permissible 
the later amounts of gold that you got afterwards, just give all of them together at the point of the first due date of the first batch of gold that got to the level, and all of the other pieces of gold are just considered advance payment, and there's no problem in that. And that's very similar to uh, wages. A person is getting a fixed wage, monthly wage. So then, for example, you've got now the nisab. You've got the, for example, 5,000 in your account now, zakat is due. You've had it for a year. So 1st of January, for example, you pay your zakat. Now every week as you go along, you're getting your extra 1,000 pounds, whatever it is. That extra now, it's not due up until the end of that month next year. So technically now, at the end of every month, you've got a section where you could say maybe your zakat is being due. But you don't do it like that. Like that, you just set that one date. You're getting your weekly amounts of money. You've now just got your pay package on the 31st of December. Technically on that, pay package zakat isn't due yet. It's not been a year, nothing. But you add it on everything you've got and you just give it in one go when you're getting monthly wages. So with these types of things, you can just do it in one go at the first go and everything else is just considered advanced payment. That's what the scholars have mentioned you can do. That is, of course, since we're talking about differences of opinion, if you take the opinion that you have to give zakat on gold that you are using and is not gold for uh, business purposes. But that's another discussion. We'll round off on that for tonight. Next week after Isha again, inshallah ta'ala. وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين